This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 47, yoga competitions and staying connected to your life's purpose. My name is Erica, and I'm your host. For this episode, I sat down with Henry Winslow. Henry is a dedicated yoga practitioner whose teaching is rooted in Gosh, Ashtanga, and Dharma yoga traditions. In 2018, Henry took first place at the International Yoga Sport Federation's World Championships, and he started his own podcast called Dharma Talk. And in 2019, he launched the Henry Yoga app, a 40-day program for anyone looking to get serious about yoga, no matter their budget or schedule. As always, I really appreciate your financial support with this podcast, so if you can, know that you can make a big difference with even a small donation to help me cover production costs and allow me to create more episodes. If you'd like to support me in this, please visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat and become a VIP member. As a thank you, you'll get access to new exclusive content every month. Okay, ready? Let's get to our episode of today with Henry. Hi, Henry. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So for listeners that don't know you very well, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your yoga journey? Like what's your story in a nutshell? Mm, okay, that's a, that's a lot to put into a nutshell, but uh, <laughs> sure. We'll dig into different I, little parts after, but just, you know, an intro. Yeah, okay. Um, I am a yoga teacher. I've been teaching for about a little over three years and practicing for about 10 years. And I came to the practice um, looking for something to complement or substitute for my springboard diving training when mm -hmm. I was in college. And um, the irony was after I got into that, I didn't go back to diving and I've been <laughs> practicing yoga ever since. Um, these days, my yoga practice entails a lot more than just what initially drew me in. Um, more than flexibility and strength has a lot to do with my meditation practice. And I would even say that teaching is an extension of my practice now too. Mm, I would agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were the International Yoga Sports Federation World Champion in 2018. Congrats. Thank you. I'm sure everybody talks about that to you. Um, I know you've participated for several years. Can you tell us how or why you got into these competitions? Yeah, definitely. Um, those competitions and training for those competitions uh, was a was a big motivator for me early on in my practice. So just to give you some context, the um, oh look at that, my cat's back there. Uh, <laughs> to give you some context, uh, the competitions were created by Bikram Chowdhury's wife, mm -hmm. Rajashri, and she created the competitions. Um, essentially because she recognized how important a yoga practice had been for her growing up as a child in India. Mm -hmm. And competitions had driven her interest in that. Uh, and she recognized that in the U.S. in particular, even more so than in India, youth and the culture were were motivated by a competitive spirit. Totally. So it wasn't so much that she was all about like, you have to pit one another, pit one person against another to get anywhere meaningful in yoga so much as this is something that's going to get people uh, a gateway or an entry point into yoga to, uh, to benefit from all the ways that we, mm -hmm. that we know that yoga benefits us. So my first, um, my first practice that really got me excited about yoga and that I was very committed to was in the Bikram lineage. Mm. So I was doing Bikram yoga every day religiously in the beginning of my practice. And after, you know, showing some 
progress there and some enthusiasm. The teachers at my studio in New York said, hey, did you know there's actually more than the 26 postures that we practice every day? Uh, Bikram's sequence actually came from his teacher and there are 84 postures. And since you know, you, you've like proven mm-hmm. yourself enough, you're welcome to come join us for this advanced class, which mm. was totally secret, um, never put on in the schedules. They didn't charge money for it. And the teachers were always just practicing along with everyone. Um, lens into like the teacher's world when I was still just a mere student. Mm-hmm. So I went and what I found was that everyone in these advanced classes was practicing for a competition. Not so much because that was the only thing that mattered, but that was just something that was in their uh, in their forward-looking culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and in their sights. So I said, okay, sure, I'll do that. And what I found was a few things. First of all, it was really nice to have something in the future to be working toward. Not because necessarily like that was a, a proving ground like what happens there determines whether my practice mm-hmm. is valid or not. Mm-hmm. But just because it gave me like a checking point mm-hmm. every once a year to go and say, okay, here's what I have today to show. And um, I'm proud of of where I am. That was one nice thing about training for competitions. And then the other was what I found when I got on stage. Mm. And so I did these competitions for many years, uh, five years. And in the very in in the beginning, all the way until my last year competing, I was always a little bit disappointed with how I did, and it wasn't because I thought like my poses aren't good enough or something like that. It was because I knew that what I was representing on stage was not an accurate re- reflection of my practice, mm, and something the pressure, about that really like from yeah, getting in your yeah. head. Mm. Absolutely, and that's what it was all about. I learned that those competitions really had very little to do with one person versus another and it had a lot to do with your mind versus mm-hmm. your deeper sense of self let's call it that mm. and every time i would go up there i would get super nervous and it was like i was inhabiting someone else's body mm-hmm. like my my knees would start trembling i wouldn't have my balance and i'd just be totally freaked out um but the lesson that I learned at the end and the reason that I finally was able to, to go all the way to the internationals and win the international competition is I finally took that pressure off of myself. And the way that I did it was I stopped trying to do something exceptional. Mm. I stopped trying to do the best thing, stopped trying to be my best and just tried to do what was normal because what was normal was more than enough. Yeah. So everybody in the back, like I was in the back room before getting on stage and everyone um, else is like drilling their routines, going over and over again, trying to nitpick and correct and get better at the last second. And I just recognized I've put in the work Mm. that I can. So I'm just going to lie down here with my eyes closed and meditate. And after after I won, this woman who was next to me in the green room said, <laughs> I can't believe you went up there. I was thinking back there, like, who is this person? Why is he asleep in the green room? He's not even competing. Oh, so that funny. was a big lesson for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want to come back at one thing you said about yeah. um, like competition being goal-oriented, generally speaking, right? And like destination-oriented. So how do you balance that preparing with practice of contentment and intentional living, which I know are things are important for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think my approach to training for those competitions was a little anomalous. Um, Most people did not approach it the way I did, which was actually not to train for the competition at all. 
Mm. I just continued doing my practice. And the reason I did that is, first of all, I didn't really think that it was um, beneficial for my body or my mind, really, to be just running my three-minute routine over and over again and getting it just right, or even to plan my routine in such a way that it was like most conducive to the most points, like to really be a competitor in that way. One, because if you do the routine over and over again, you're, it's kind of an imbalanced practice. You're mm-hmm. going to do one side of the posture over and over again, and your routine isn't necessarily moving through all the different directions of the spine, which is something that's really important to me in my practice. And secondly, because that wasn't my intention for doing the competition. My intention for doing the competition was never to be the best one and to win. Mm. It was to give myself some like a goal orientation for my practice. And if that and if drilling routines was not going to take me deeper into my practice, then that isn't how I wanted to train. So I just continued doing my normal thing always. And, and I think probably in the beginning that didn't serve like in the short term. And mm-hmm. that's why I got nervous because I wasn't used to doing my routine. But in the, in the greater view and in, in the broader view, I think that really did help me mm-hmm. with balancing contentment and, and everything that you mentioned. Yeah. And so when the goal is not to win, what happens when you do win? Like what happens when you get to that level, you feel like you've attained that level of mastery now, although you had it already in your body, but now it's recognized Does the mindset shifts. The mind, did my mindset shift after mm-hmm. I won? Was that did the Did that change something for you? Um, well, it gave me some relief that I didn't feel like I had anything else to prove and I didn't need to go back to the competitions. Mm. Um, so I'm officially retired from, <laughs> from the competitions. Uh, but, uh, in terms of like my my identity or my self worth, definitely not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't change anything, and it and I hold no false pretenses that that makes me the best yogi in the world or even the best yoga asana demonstrator in the world. Because I know that there are plenty of other people who are extremely dedicated and just have no interest in mm-hmm. in showcasing it in that way. So it's just a nice box that you could tick. <laughs> It was a nice box that I could take, <laughs> mostly because I opened the box in the beginning, mm-hmm. not totally. because like objectively it's an important box to take. Yeah, totally. There's still a lot of controversy around the concept of yoga as a sport. What are your thoughts on mm-hmm. that or your experience of that? Because you said before that it was not about like pinning each other against each other. So yeah. maybe there's a sense that it's actually not so competitive. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I completely get that reaction when people hear about yoga competition. Oh, that's like, that's completely counterproductive yeah, that's not to what the goal about. of yoga. Mm-hmm. And I agree, that isn't what yoga is about. But I also think competition is not what football is about. You know, mm. it's like, just because that's not what it's about doesn't mean that it's not a a worthy framework from which to approach something. Sure. And what I will say is that... In my time competing, I never once felt animosity from anyone else competing. And perhaps that's just general sportsmanship, or perhaps that's something that's specific and and characteristic of the yoga community. But it always felt very supportive. And all my time competing, everyone that was going up against me was cheering me on and Mm -hmm. vice versa. So as you were a competitive diver before, how yoga as a sport... Is it different than like other competitive sports? Yeah. Is it just well, that aspect a, or? I think there's a lot of similarity with something like diving because we have in diving, 
you represent a team, but you go up on your own. So mm-hmm. it's not like a collaborative sport where you're tossing or you're going to get an assist and toss the ball to someone else. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you have to have accountability for, for your own mental disposition and your own performance. Um, also, a similarity is that these are subjective performances that are uh, subject to the critique of a panel of judges. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can lay out um, guidelines and rules through which they're going to be critiquing your work. But ultimately, you might be disappointed because you disagree with the, the ruling of a, of a judge. So sure. that happens in both. Um, but I think the main difference, yeah, is, is the, is the approach or, or the outlook that a lot of the competitors have, because even in diving, I I found that people, you know, sometimes would be like hoping that you messed up. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just never found that to be the case with yoga. And it also could be a difference in the age, you know, when I was competing in diving, I was like an adolescent and, and then through college, but in the yoga scene, it's adults. You know, I'm competing against 18 through 49 year olds, which is a completely different stage of life and different level of maturity. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to one thing you said earlier and bring it back to that. Um, you were talking about how in the competition, you have this new relationship with your mind or a deeper sense of self. And I think yoga in general has an impact on our relationship to ourselves and to others. Now you're talking about competitors and this is where I'm bringing it together does the competitive side adds to that or takes away from that? Like, is there something you've learned about yourself or about your relationship with others through that, that you wouldn't have learned otherwise just practicing or teaching regularly? Well, I think it's less about the, the fact that one person is going to be given a prize and another person is going to be given up, given a runner up prize. And it has more to do with the level of energetic investment that all the competitors put into it. Certainly not to say that we don't put energy into our teaching and our practice without competition, but I think there's something, there's just another layer added on showcase your ability or showcase your practice. And everybody comes together for that special event and like everyone's emotions are raised and, um, and then you have that one that one shot, and it, it, it it's like many other powerful experiences that you share with another person. Mm. Um, when you go through shared experience together, I think it really brings you together in a way that words and conversation and physical touch and lots of other um, methods of connection just don't provide. Not because they're less than, but just because they're different. It's somewhat similar to the idea of being in. A sangha. I mean, you could call it a sangha, actually, the community of competitors, because we keep in touch with one another. We see each other mm-hmm. once a year or maybe more if you go on through the different levels of the competition. But it's quite similar to like the connection that you have when you go to the same shala or the same yoga school and practice with the same people every day. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've experienced this before, or maybe some of the listeners have experienced this before, where you've never even spoke, you never said a word to someone that's in your shala and you practice with them every single day, but you feel like you know them and like you would go to bat for them. It's kind of like that. Mm. And what's one thing you learned about yourself through all these experiences? About yourself as a practitioner or about yourself as a teacher or as a human being? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. The the biggest, most profound lesson that I've taken away from my whole journey with 
competing and training for competition and developing my asana practice to the level that it took to be competitive at the international stage is never ever to place limitations on myself based on assumption. Um, always test, test and see what's possible. Because I remember the first time that I went to that advanced class, the one that I was invited to by the mm-hmm. teachers and, and two people, the person who was teaching the class and, and someone who was also a very experienced practitioner and competitor and who would go on to be one of my main teaching mentors were both there. And I don't know how familiar familiar you are with the 84 gosh asanas, but there's some just absolutely absurd, ridiculous postures in there that are just downright silly. And um, I saw them go through every single one, just like no problem being able to talk and teach through it. And up until that point, I didn't even realize that some of those shapes were possible for the human form, (laughs) but they were done so I don't want to say casually because there was a lot of focus, but with done with such like grace mm-hmm. that I, it really opened my eyes. And I, and I think you can have two different reactions to that. The first reaction that many people have is intimidation or try or dismissal. Like, okay, that person yeah, has whatever. genetic, like <laughs> I'll never be able to do that. That person is a freak of nature and fine. And then the other reaction that you can have, which fortunately I was wired to have for whatever reason was, okay, that's inspiring. If they can do that, that means it's possible. That means I can do it. Do you find most people respond like that to you? Because like if a beginner would look at your Instagram page, they might think like either of those two things, like I'll never be able to do this. This is definitely out of this world or whatever. This guy was a gymnast and it doesn't even count. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's one or the other, and it can and it continues to be one or the other for responses to me. But um, it, it isn't just the thing about Instagram is like I guess it's better with video and like being able to do talking videos on your story and stuff. But if you're just looking at pictures of people in asanas, then it's easy to like create your own narrative about the person and not really it's have a sense of. It's very impersonal. Yeah. And you're not getting a sense of the energy that they're putting out, their attitude, their kind of um, just their flavor. And when you do get a better picture of someone, either because they're more active on video and social media or whatever, or because you actually meet them in person, then you tend to send out the frequency that attracts the right sort of person that will connect with you. So naturally, you know, the people who come to my classes and find me to be uh, an appealing teacher are the ones who have the same kind of reaction that I do. That are inspired. Okay. Everything is possible. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Shifting gears a little bit. You host a Dharma Talk podcast, so not a podcaster here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Where you interview other yogis about their path and their purpose, which is an awesome subject. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, so Dharma talk, how do you define Dharma? And I know I've heard you define it before, but just for people listening here, how do you define Dharma and what would you say is your Dharma and what you do in your life right now? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I love that question, of course, because I ask it to people (laughs) every week. Of course. Uh, and fortunately being in the position that I am as the host of the podcast, I've gotten to hear a lot of different takes on on that term and how people are viewing it and practicing it in their lives. And because of that, I think my understanding of it has been pretty dynamic. It's shifted over time. 
I think there there was a time early on in you know learning the term and reading the Bhagavad Gita and and so forth that I essentially translated it as your purpose, mm-hmm. like the the thing that you are meant to do, the thing that you are in alignment when you're doing in this lifetime. Which I think most people would define it define it like that. Yeah, I do think that is a, a pretty common understanding of the term. And I, I don't disagree with it, but m- my understanding of it has changed more toward less, less, um, less of a static uh, position of alignment and mm. more toward an evolutionary journey. And by that, what I really mean is that it's kind of impossible to not be in your dharma. Mm, okay. How so? Uh, I, I think now that it is basically impossible to be outside of your dharma because dharma is more of an evolution, the evolution of one's life, um, the evolution of one's soul in this embodied life. And I say that because I reflect back on my own experience and look at like the time that before I found yoga, like I feel like I'm in alignment now teaching yoga. And I feel like it's something that I'm meant to do, at least at this stage in my life, mm-hmm. working in pharmaceutical, sell it, helping pharmaceutical companies profit off the sick in a way that just didn't fit my morals and was not aligned to my principles. Um, and it's easy to say, oh, I was not living my dharma at that time. But the reality is I needed to get pushed to that, that breaking point in order to be challenged and, uh, and then reassess what it was that I was doing. And I don't think it's coincidental that right around the time that I got that job was the time that I started practicing yoga Mm. and yoga helped me to understand myself. And it was there to catch me when I was ready to walk away from everything that I had built up. Mm -hmm. So So, that was my Dharma too. Yeah. Because it shaped who you are today. Exactly. And, and, and one step leads to the another, to the next. Yeah. So that job definitely participated in your dharma and the podcast kind of shaped your definition of what it is. How do you see your yoga practice shaping your understanding of dharma today and you feeling that it is part of your dharma at this point? Yeah, well, I I will say that practicing yoga was um, and continues to be a critical practice in understanding who I am. And, you know, even if you, if you look at the traditional texts, if you look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, what is the purpose of yoga? Yoga is to still the fluctuations of the mind so that the seer can abide in his own nature. And I found that to be um, resonant in, in my personal experience. Like I said before, I, I had that job and I, I got there through a lot of hard work and doing what I thought was supposed to be done. You know, you get good grades in school so you can get into a good college. You do well in college so you can get the good job. Mm-hmm. And I did all of that. I, I, I executed as I was supposed to. And yet there I was in a situation where I was looking around and thinking, what is this? This, this is the life that I've created for myself. I don't believe in this work. The people around me are not happy. I don't want to be where they are in 10 years. And and, and what do I do about that? Like, wh- why did this happen? So fortunately, I had yoga come into my life and I practiced and I practiced. And it's hard to explain how it works. I don't know that we should necessarily need to be able to. Mm. But through, through steady practice, I believe yoga played a role in me coming to terms with 
with the stories that I was telling myself Mm -hmm. and stepping out of the conditioning and the assumptions that I made about what was the right thing to do and what was the, um, like the high performing thing to do. The thing you're supposed to do. Yeah. It's like when you turn the noise down, now you can see the truth a little bit of yeah, and, and, and the truth is not necessarily the same for everyone, but no, of course. the truth r- about myself that was revealed to me showed up in the sense of like feeling good or feeling bad about certain things. You might call it the voice of the soul. You might call it your intuition. Mm-hmm. I think quieting things down through practice and, and steady breathing and, and yoga asana helped me to hear that voice and, and just be more attuned to, to the feeling of my actions. Mm-hmm. So on the podcast, you talk about purpose. In your opinion, how can yoga help us live a life of purpose and perf- personal significance? So once we have quieted down and we see a little bit more of that truth and cl- we have a bit more clarity, what's next? How can yoga help us? Yeah, well, this is this is a good question. And I think it really gets to the crux of, of what yoga is here to do for us. Mm-hmm. Because well, okay, let's say that yoga is a spiritual practice um, and it's meant to connect us to our higher self, our, our God self, or to connect us to our connection with the universe and with other people and recognize that we contain the same seed that, um, that birthed the entire universe. Let's say that, that let's, let's say that we accept that. Then what are we to do with that? Because we're still living in this 3D reality, even if we come to that realization, which can be life altering and and can completely change your perspective. Mm -hmm. But then what do we do here embodied in 3D reality with with problems, which yes, everything is perfect, but we still deal with problems and we still um, still have challenges and people are still suffering. So here's what I think yoga really does to improve the 3D world around us. It shows people what is important to them so that they can make a conscious decision that's going to fuel everything else that you do. And maybe you want to be a yoga teacher. That's what I do. And mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what you do. We, mm-hmm. we encourage people to practice yoga so that they can connect to themselves. But many people... And certainly not everyone needs to be a yoga teacher. Many people will use the wisdom that they gain from yoga to understand something that is deeply problematic for them or deeply uh, important for them, and then go deep, go head on into changing the world in in a way that is significant, not just for them, but for other people. So I think the way that you live a life of purpose and the way that yoga plays a role in that is to tune you on to your mental, uh, your moral compass, awaken you to problems and, and uh, solutions that you want to bring to those problems, and then invigorate you to tackle them with, mm. with renewed fervor every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you were talking about how having all the guests on the podcast gave you some information about Dharma, but I'm sure you've learned all sorts of amazing lessons. Is there one person or one lesson that really stuck with you and really touched you that you like on the top of your head, you're like, Oh, this is the one I tell people all the time. 
that is, that is such a tough question because anytime people ask me like, what was your favorite, what has been your favorite podcast episode? And yeah, anytime you say that what your favorite is, it's like, you're, it's like you're implying that the other ones are not good. And I certainly don't want to do that. So I'm just going to go with the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question. And perhaps there's some recency bias with this, but, um, but still it, it left an impact. And that was when I interviewed um, Anna Forrest and Jose Calarco. And they spoke about what makes forest yoga unique and what is like, what's the essence of their system. Yeah, we've had them on too. uh, Yeah, I really like them. And I actually have not met them in person, but I'm going to go practice with them in uh, in May. So I'm excited for that. But uh, what they said was, among many other things that are important in their system of yoga, is music and musical expression. And it really resonated with me um, because I grew up playing music. I grew up uh, playing the violin. Uh, I was in a, a men's chorus later on, uh, actually in college, and I was in rock bands in high school. And somehow when I stepped into my adult life, that just fell by the wayside completely. And and they spoke about that like in concept. And I was like, wait, wait, that's, that is me. That is me. And Anna said, Henry, what if, think about this. What if you made music part of your spiritual practice? Would it then be a priority for you? And it just like blew my mind because music is spiritual. Mm-hmm. Music is so spiritual. It's one of the, one of the most like, primal ways that we have to express ourselves beyond verbal communication. And there's nothing really quite like it in terms of the way that you can convey emotion and not just convey emotion, but actually process your own emotion by, by playing. So that, that is something that uh, really left an impact on me. And now I'm looking into all sorts of new new instruments that I can get and uh, put in my new home in Los Angeles. So what are you wanting to include now in your everyday practice? I really want to get a handpan. So I'm saving up for a handpan. Uh-huh. Fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that will be definitely fun. Do you have a relationship to like mantra and chanting and those kind of oh, things? Yeah. Okay. Oh, so yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. I listen, I listen to mantra. Like whenever I'm in the car driving, you can count on one of two things playing, either podcasts or <laughs> mantras. <laughs> We'd be good friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. You also have an app, your guy of many talents, uh, called the Henry Yoga App. I know your mission is to make yoga accessible for all. How do you do that coming from a place where your practice is so physically advanced? Do you think it's actually for all levels or is it more geared towards like intermediate students that want to deepen your skill? What does it mean to make accessible yeah. for you? Yeah, that, that is a good question and something that I'm constantly investigating with, with this project. Uh, when we launched it, my business partner and I, we had a shared mission that we wanted to make a high integrity yoga practice available to many or all. It's pretty, pretty low barrier of entry, particularly compared to some of the other yoga um, digital platforms out there that charge a subscription fee. Ours is a one-time cost, which is comparable to like a drop-in yoga class. So that, that is part of what we mean by making it accessible is the, the financial barrier. Yes. But to your point about the level of practice, something that we've found since releasing it is that it definitely does appeal more toward 
the the people who have an existing practice and in fact are already quite committed to their practice but want to go deeper with it. So I think that's a, a reflection of my teaching and and the kind of students that show up to my classes in person as well. So it's not t- too much of a surprise, but for us to go deeper into that mission of really making yoga accessible to all, it's going to involve a pivot of the business, which we are reflecting on and deciding how we want to handle, um, potentially by bringing on other teachers and doing other types of modules. At the moment, um, I don't feel like I'm necessarily the best person to teach beginners, not because I'm incapable of it, but because there are people who are better at it than totally. I am. So um, yeah, it's it's available to all, but maybe it doesn't appeal to all. Mm. Would you say that most, or do you think you have more male students than other teachers? Like, do you feel like probably more than the average, probably disproportionately represented, yeah. but I still end up with more female students than men. Mm-hmm. But you must appeal to the physicality of men that want to push a little further. Maybe you know, I I think the the type of person that really shows up for my class and and gets interested and like sees something differently um, is someone who has a similar background to me. Someone who is like very type A, maybe has like the office job and had never really considered spirituality because they dismissed it as being like too too woo-woo or like for women or something. But then when they see me speak about it in a sort of different type of language and approach it with a, a rational level-headedness that maybe they didn't expect, it gives them cause for pause and and a reason to rethink it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, from the outside, it seems like you're doing it all as a teacher. You know, your personal practice is definitely a serious one. There's the competitions in your past. There's the teachings, the podcast, the app. And I know since December, you've been teaching and traveling quite a bit. I assume that yeah. was kind of a also a, a goal and something you've been wanting to do. What's next? Where do we go from here? How do you... <laughs> Continue to stay, you know, interested and motivated on this path. Yeah. Uh, The the traveling to do workshops and teach around the world is something that I very much wanted to do from the beginning of going uh, into full-time teaching. And I did it right from the beginning, actually. I was fortunate enough that my wife has been teaching much longer than I have and had a vast network of teachers and studio owners around the world that she knew from her past trainings. So right after I did my first teacher training, I'd already been teaching for like a year, but after I got properly certified, we said, let's go on a tour and, um, and get some more experience, have some fun, mix business with pleasure, see the world. And we did that. And from the first time and, and the lesson that's been reaffirmed over and over again, each time we've done it is, it's a lot harder than it seems. Um, and it's very energetically uh, draining and exhausting. So what I've learned is I'm not the sort of person that can do that um, continuously. And I know that there are teachers out there that that make a career out of it and and are really fed. Like they love it. They gain energy from doing that. And that's just not me. Uh, so I, I just finished a three-week tour. And that's about the limit for me. At the end of doing, like giving my all for three straight weekends in a row. And that's even with the weeks off in between to rest and recuperate, I'm ready to go back to stability. 
So what's next for me is for the first time since November of last year to get a home and have a, like a regular place, the same bed that I wake up in every day, get into more of a routine in the mornings, which that, that is such a major component of my mental health and well-being is to have a regular routine and pick up some regular classes in LA and start to build up a student base there. And actually, something else that I'm doing uh, in order to be able to put more energy into the Henry Yoga app business and potentially take that into new directions uh, is I am going to teach a little bit less, travel less. And I picked up a part-time job working at a startup company that's making vegan cheese and distributing it direct to consumer through subscription. And I'm really, really excited about it because it's amazing. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) Any tips for teachers that are considering that nomadic lifestyle of teaching and traveling? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say, well, there are tips about how to go about making that a reality and then tips about how to manage it mm. when, when you're doing it. Do you have a preference or? Whichever you feel more inclined to share, which you think is more important for people to think about. Okay. Yeah. I think more important uh, than how to make it happen because honestly, it's not as hard as, as you might think to make it happen, especially if you um, are willing to be open-minded about the sorts of engagements that you do. Like the first time that I went, it wasn't like all weekends of workshops where I was like a big Fancy ticket festivals. guest teacher. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that at all. I actually like some like some of them were that, but we also went to places where we were just resident teachers for a week and a half or two weeks where mm-hmm. the studio was understaffed. And that was a great way to gain experience too and still get that that learning experience of teaching people from a different background whose native language is not English and, and all of that. But for tips for actually managing the pressure of doing it, the first thing I think that is critical is it's hard, but keep up your own practice. Mm. That's got to be number one, not necessarily chronologically first thing in your day, but it needs to be priority number one that you get your practice in because it's going to keep you feeling well. It's going to inspire your teaching. And honestly, like, how can you be a yoga teacher if you're not practicing yoga? And it, it seems obvious, but when you travel and like you lose your studio home and it's up to you to keep up your home practice and maybe you're staying in a tight little Airbnb it becomes tricky and it's tempting to let it slip by the wayside, but you, you just can't. That's got to be, that is so important for maintaining your sanity and your ability to do a good job teaching while you're traveling. Mm-hmm. So that would be a big uh, tip. And then another tip would be, if possible, do it with a partner. Like I'm really lucky because my wife is a yoga teacher and we get to go and do things together and it makes the vacation part more enjoyable and it makes the teaching part more manageable. Uh, And then one last tip would be, and of course that doesn't necessarily need to be your partner. It could be like a a friend or a a teaching colleague. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then my last tip would be try to find when everything else is changing, when all of your external circumstances are variable and unpredictable, try to bring in elements of consistency. Your practice is one of those things, but there can be other things. Like maybe you travel with something that's like an item of comfort from home. Or maybe you have like a little morning coffee ritual that you do without checking your phone and just gives you like uh, a way to have a like daily quotidian lifestyle meditation. I think 
All of those things are really helpful and they seem small, but they have a profound effect, especially when stacked. Mm, Yeah, totally. Small things makes big difference. Great. Anything you want to add before we wrap it up? If there's like one takeaway you'd like listeners to leave this episode with, what would that be? Mm. Okay. One thing that I would like to leave listeners with. Uh, Okay. You asked about lessons that I've learned from my practice. This is a big one. And, um, and if you can really embrace this, then it makes life a lot more enjoyable. And that is you can have whatever you want in this life, as long as you are interested and engaged in the process. That is a very good takeaway. I'll put all your info in the show notes, obviously for people to find you, but in the meantime, if they want to say hello or they want to find all the things you do, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, they can connect with me on Instagram. My handle there is at Henry Wins. My website is henrywins.com. And they can also talk with Henry Winslow. And lastly, the yoga app is available on the Apple App Store in the US. And for Android users or international users, henryyoga.com. Repeat the name of your podcast. It kind of cut just to make sure people get it. The name of the podcast is Dharma Talk with Henry Winslow. Great. Thank you, Henry, so much for your, your time today. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Erica. It's really a pleasure um, on my side as well. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you listen. And if you wanted to continue, don't forget, please visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat to donate or become a VIP member and get your hands on all our exclusive content. Check out the show notes to find more info about our guest of today, Henry Winslow, or my top five biggest takeaways from this episode. Before we go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba, working in the background, creating the music, editing, and mastering this podcast. Once again, guys, thank you for listening. Until next time.